1970, Stevie Wonder released a hit song. As a matter of fact, it's the theme of tonight's Bible study, particularly chapter 10. Here it is. There you go. That's what chapter 10's about. That's what we could entitle it. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. After hearing Ezra and God's word, and the Levites recount the history of Israel, the Jewish leaders took an oath, and they made a covenant to be fully devoted to God. In fact, we're told in the last verse of chapter 9, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant, and we write it, our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Notice what they did. They signed it. They sealed it. They delivered it. They said to God, I'm yours. Verse 1 tells us, Now those who placed their seal on the document were, here's the first name, Nehemiah the governor, son of Hakaliah. When members of the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence, their president, John Hancock, signed his name first. That fiery John Hancock pinned his signature in big, bold, oversized letters. He said the reason he did it is he wanted King George to be able to read it without putting on his spectacles. Well, when the Jewish leaders signed this declaration of commitment to God, Nehemiah goes first. I wonder if he signed his name as large as John Hancock. He was certainly just as fiery and just as passionate. Hey, verses 2 through 27 list the rest of the signers, 83 names in all. Let's jump down to verse 28. Now the rest of the people, and then he lists those who worked on the temple, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, sons, daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God in his ordinances and his statutes. In other words, they asked God to bless their obedience and to curse their disobedience. They took an oath that tied their future to the will of God. And God brings two issues to the forefront of the people's hearts. The first is separation, and the second is participation. And these two issues are vital for you and me today. If we really want to live committed lives to Jesus, we need to separate ourselves from the evil influences around us, and then we need to participate in the activities and to support the institutions that strengthen our faith. Key again today, as it was in Nehemiah's day, is to separate and participate. First, notice the Jews should separate. To watch out with whom you hang out. Verse 30. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. In essence, they stopped sleeping with the enemy. They stopped intermingling their lives and families with pagans. As we've talked about so many times now, so often believers will marry unbelievers. This is tragic. 
This is a mistake. The Bible forbids two people being unequally yoked. Don't embroil your life in a relationship with someone who is of a different breed. A believer should never marry an unbeliever. Hey, when a Christian marries a non-Christian, understand, you get the devil as a father-in-law. That's never a good thing. An unequally yoked marriage becomes a perpetual wrestling match. Don't go there. But beyond marriage, verse 30 teaches us that we need to be careful about any entanglement with unbelievers. How many Christians have betrayed their commitment to Jesus after adopting the wrong circle of friends? Oh, she was such an outspoken Christian until she made the cheerleading squad. Oh, he was an on-fire believer for Jesus until he got that big promotion. Oh, they were actively involved in the church until they went off and joined the country club. Hey, understand, I don't advocate isolationism. How can we reach unbelievers if we don't befriend them and interact with them? Jesus was called a friend of sinners. The kind of separation we should maintain is not avoidance, but attachment. You shouldn't avoid interacting with the world around you. If you don't interact with them, how can you win them to Christ? But just don't get attached to their ways and their thoughts and their philosophies. Vance Havner put it this way. We are not to be isolated, but insulated. Moving in the midst of evil, but untouched by it. We need to keep a healthy separation. But separation is only half of a believer's duty. Separate and participate. And participate in four ways. He he lists them here the rest of the chapter. First, exercise your faith. Second, do your part. Third, give your best. And fourth, pay your tithes. Well, notice in verse 31, Nehemiah tells the Jews to exercise their faith. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. In other words, the Jews promised to reverence the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. You remember in Exodus, God told Israel to set aside one day in seven to rest their body, and one year in seven to rest the land. Both the soul and the soil needed replenishing. But both laws required faith. To take a year off or to take a day off to worship God means that I'm trusting God to do more with my six than I could do with seven. I think of the Chick-fil-A restaurants. You know, they honor this biblical principle. The Chick-fil-A website states, closed Sundays, it's part of the Chick-fil-A recipe. You know, the corporation wants employees to have a day off every week, one day in seven, to worship God and to spend time with their family and to rest from their labors. But I'm sure there are plenty of franchise owners who see that forced day off as an exercise in faith. They're giving up a day to Zaxby's. And they're trusting God to make it up in the other six. Guys, faith is like a muscle. If you want it to grow, you got to exercise it. I mean, look at me and all these muscles. It just doesn't come naturally. You gotta exercise like I do once a year. 
But seriously, if you want your faith to grow, if you want your faith to beef up and bulk up, if you want a buff faith, you need to exercise. And here's how you exercise your faith. You study the Word of God. You pray. You fellowship with other believers. And you worship with all your heart. Hey, neglect spiritual exercise and your faith will grow flabby. Well, in verse 32, the Jews promise also to do their part. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. In other words, a temple tax was imposed on all Jewish worshipers. And Nehemiah understood the big picture. Their walk with God would ultimately only be as strong as the place where they were fed and led. Did you hear that? Ultimately, their walk with God would only be as strong as the place where they were fed and led, the temple. And what was true of the Old Testament temple is certainly true of the New Testament church. We need a place where we can go to gain strength. That place, we need that place to remain strong. That's why it's important that we give to our church as much as it is we take from our church. You know, the church is like a blood bank. Sometimes you go to get a transfusion. At other times you go to give blood, but you got to do both. You got to be a giver as well as a taker. The leaders say in verse 34, we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Here's another way they did their part. They all took turns bringing firewood to the temple. Now, I think this is important. Maybe you can't support your church with gold and with silver, but everyone can bring a bundle of wood from time to time. Hey, when there's a need to move chairs or to vacuum or to pick up paper or to pass out announcement sheets or to serve grits on Sunday morning in the brook, if someone comes up and asks, would anyone be willing to lend a hand? You should step up and say, I would. Hey, we all need to bring some wood to the house of the Lord. You get enough firewood together and God might just ignite it and do something special. Yes, I would. Let's all do our part. Notice verse 35. They gave their best. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God to bring the first fruits of our dough. Hey, are you following suit there? Do you bring God the first fruits of your dough? Do you tithe? Do you give of your money to the Lord? You know, in the Old Testament, they were required to bring most everything, the first of most everything to the Lord. The first fruits belong to God. In other words, they gave God their best. We're told they brought the first fruits of the dough, of the offerings, 
of the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. Do you give God your first, or do you give God what's left over? Reminds me of the cattle rancher who boasted in church that he had decided to give one of his newborn calves to the Lord. Two calves were born that night, but tragically, one of them died at birth. Later, the farmer said to his wife, I've got bad news. The Lord's calf died tonight. I hope you always give God the best of your time and of your talents and of your efforts and of your resources. We need to participate. We need to exercise our faith and do our part and give our best. And finally, we need to pay our tithes. Now, let me clarify a point here. You give an offering, but you pay a tithe. The tithe is not yours. It belongs to the Lord even before you give it. Malachi chapter 3 accuses the people of Israel of robbing God. And they say, why? How did we rob God? And Malachi says, by failing to pay your tithes. Verse 38 says, And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. Notice the word tithe means tenth. People say, well, how much is a tithe? Well, the word means tenth. The people tithe to the Levites, and then the Levites tithe to the Lord. Malachi 3, as I mentioned earlier, reveals that tithing is the one area in life where God challenges us to test Him. He says this, Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. If you tithe, God promises to respond with abundant provision. And you know, I have never met anyone who tithed to the Lord faithfully and regularly that was begging for bread. Never. Let me encourage you to exercise your faith by tithing of your income. The 10% that I give each week, that I give from my paycheck, reminds me that the rest of it too belongs to the Lord. And I have to trust Him that He can do more with the 90% than I could do with the 100%. And He's never failed me on that. He's always proved faithful. If you can trust God with your soul, surely you can trust Him with a tithe. Well, chapter 10 closes, verse 39. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. And I hope you leave tonight with that last line ringing in your ears. They all vowed, they all committed we will not neglect the house of our God. God, separate from the world. Participate in your church. And then you can sing, Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours, Lord. Well, in chapter 11, a lottery is held to pick the families who are now going to move in and live within the new walls of Jerusalem. It was the first urban renewal program in history. Verse 1. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten 
to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. Now, according to chapter 7, about 45,000 Jews returned to Babylon to the city of Jerusalem and its suburbs. Here we're told that 10% of that 45,000, or about 4,500, were chosen to move in and live within these walls that Nehemiah had built. We're told, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Apparently, it was considered a great honor to be chosen. These people voluntarily uprooted and moved their families into the city. Now, verse 3 through the end of chapter 11 gives us two lists. Verses 3 through 24 list the names of those people who settled inside of the walls of the city. While verses 25 through 36 list the other cities, the suburbs around Jerusalem, where people settled. Now, we're not going to read these names, but let's do scan through for a few applicable details. Verse 4 mentions, The children of Judah, consisting of 468, quote, valiant men. In verse 6, the Hebrew word translated valiant means a force. It's sometimes applied to an army. At other times, it applied to a man of means and resources. You've heard the expression, he was a force to be reckoned with. These were men who had impact on others. They were a force to be reckoned with. That's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be a person of influence. I don't want to be a person you can just ignore. I want to be a force to reckon with, for Jesus' sake. I hope you want to be that as well. Beginning of verse 7, Nehemiah lists the sons of Benjamin. And there were 928. Verse 9 tells us, Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Zenua, was second over the city. Notice, everybody needs an overseer, and every overseer needs someone who is second in command, someone who can help him carry the load. You know, sometimes it's harder to be second than it is to be the overseer. You know that. You have to be humble and willing, and you have to constantly be willing to serve and put others before yourself. You know, everybody wants to bat lead off and steal the bases and slide head first into home and score the runs. It takes a really unselfish person to bat second and to bunt the runner over. I'm sure Zikri appreciated Judah's willingness to serve as second. And I know that I am thankful for Pastor James. For over the years, God has called me to oversee, but he has also called Pastor James to serve as second in command. And he does such a wonderful job. He has been bunting me over for years, and I appreciate it. Well, verse 19 mentions the gatekeepers. With new gates, you need gatekeepers. And at Calvary Chapel, the ushers serve as our gatekeepers. They open doors, they direct the traffic, they help people who are having problems, they boot babies out of the sanctuary nicely, gently, but they do it. They provide security for the fellowship. Reminds me of the little boy who was running down the halls one Sunday morning making a lot of noise, and the usher had to come over and quiet him down. Later, he said to one of his friends, he said, when I grow up, I want to be one of those hushers. 
Verse 22 tells us, also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi. And trust me, nobody messed with Uzi. He was a straight shooter. He was the kind of guy that could blow you away. When he came to make a decision, it was always automatic. Uzi was a great guy, always a blast to be with. Just thought you'd get a bang out of all of that. Well, again, verses 25 through 36 mention the villages outside of Jerusalem. We jump down to chapter 12. Now, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Remember, 90 years before Nehemiah, Zerubbabel led the first wave of Jews from Babylon to rebuild the temple. And verses 1 through 24 list those who served with Zerubbabel. In verse 24, we're told they served to praise and give thanks, group alternating with group, according to the command of David, the man of God. You remember in the days of David, the priests were so numerous that David had to organize them into groups. Each group served an alternating shift. Well, evidently, Nehemiah reestablished David's method. In verse 27, this list of priests ends and the subject changes. Nehemiah tells us about a parade. It is D-Day or dedication day for the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem. And everybody loves a parade. Absolutely. You know, when my kids were tots, every 4th of July, Kathy and I would pack them up and we'd head down to the little village of Stone Mountain for the annual Independence Day parade. Trust me. It was as lame a parade as it gets. (laughs) A few stumbling clowns and a couple of horses and maybe one or two antique cars and, of course, the Stone Mountain High School beauty queen. She wasn't on vacation at the beach. And as a matter of fact, if you brought your bicycle, you could even join in on the parade. Hey, when the mayor of Stone Mountain is the main attraction... It's a pitiful parade. But you know what? My kids didn't see it that way. Oh, I can remember little Zach and Natalie. They'd be standing there, and their eyes would be as big as saucers, wide open, gazing and gawking at everything that came down Main Street. They were thrilled. And it proved to me that deep down inside, everybody loves a parade. You certainly would have loved the parade that Nehemiah organizes here. Verse 27. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem from the villages of Nepophathites. Maybe. From the house of Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. And isn't that kind of a cool thought? The singers and the musicians all kind of lived together in these little worship communities. You know no work got done. (laughs) The musicians and the singers all hanging out together. You know what happened. They were fun places to be, but no work got done. I mean... Imagine the jam sessions that just broke out all the time, up and down the street. You know, people just jamming and singing and having a big time. Verse 30. 
Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate. This group was led by Ezra. They marched south past the refuse gate onto the fountain gate where they climbed up some stairs to the top of the wall. Verses 32 through 36 list the people in Ezra's group. Nehemiah led another group. They marched the opposite direction northward on top of the wall. Verse 38. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, and I was behind them with half of the people on the wall, going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hananiel, the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. Apparently both parades met at the temple. Hopefully, if all goes according to plan, this coming Wednesday, Kathy and I are going to be spending an extra day there in Jerusalem. And one of the things I want to take her and do is to go down to the Jaffa Gate, and walk up the little staircase there, and walk across the walls of Jerusalem. All the way around, you can walk all the way around to the Damascus Gate, and you can look out over the Temple Mount. And it's just, you know, it's amazing to be on top of the walls of Jerusalem. Keep us in your prayers. It all goes well. But apparently both these parades met at the temple. Verse 40 tells us, So the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Now remember chapter 4, when Tobiah scoffed at Nehemiah and his attempt to rebuild the walls. He laughed at him. He mocked him. He said this, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Do you think Nehemiah remembered that remark? And that's why he organizes two huge parades to march across the top of these walls. The walls that the critics said couldn't hold the weight of a single fox now supports two Thanksgiving Day parades. Imagine the enemies of Nehemiah, old Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, all standing off in the distance, looking at these walls, watching this vast parade of people, hearing the praises of God. Hey, it was a witness to Nehemiah's faith and most importantly, to God's faithfulness. Look at verse 42. I'm sure that Josh wants me to mention this point. We're told the singers sang loudly with Jezrahiah, the director. Guys, nobody likes to sing alone. When Josh is up here leading worship, if he's the only person he can hear, it's depressing. Here the director encourages the people to sing loudly. Hey, sing so I can hear you. I don't sing good, but I can sing loud. Verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem, catch this, how loud was it? It was pretty loud because it was heard afar off. They raised the roof. They sang joyfully and loudly. We're told that they sang so loud they could be heard afar off. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus spoke about our praying. He said, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Prayer is personal. But praise, to the contrary, is a very public act. Hey, whisper your prayers, but shout, sing loudly your praise. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. But when you praise God, roll down the windows, baby. Let the neighbors hear. Praise is a public declaration of God's glory and grace, and we should sing loudly and unashamedly so everyone can behold our God, the object of our praise. Well, chapter 10, the Jews were instructed to pay tithes and to support the temple, and they obeyed, so much so that in verses 44 through 47, Nehemiah has to make arrangements to count the offering. Under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, the Jews supported the temple. Now, one of the fundamental laws in physics is the second law of thermodynamics. It's called the law of entropy. Entropy states that natural processes, when left alone by themselves, move toward decay and disintegration. In other words, stuff breaks down. I am a prophet. I predict that before long, something will break down on your car. You don't need a prophet to know that. It's the tendency for all things to break down, to go from order to chaos, to go from order to randomness, unless energy gets added from outside the system. Of course, entropy doesn't just apply to physical stuff. It's also true in the spiritual realm. If you ignore your faith long enough, if you add no energy from outside the system, it will eventually break down and decay and deteriorate. Faith has to be fed and cultivated and exercised to last. And entropy also affects a church. William Booth once said to a group of new Salvation Army leaders, he said, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. In other words, spiritual fires go out unless there are leaders that will keep fanning the flame and putting wood on that fire. Nehemiah was in Jerusalem for 12 years. Chapter 2 says that he left Persia in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Chapter 13, verse 6 says that he returned in the king's 32nd year, returned to Persia that is. But when Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem for Persia, trouble starts. Without his leadership, entropy sets in. Chapter 10 was the high watermark for the Jews. They promised to follow God, signed, sealed, delivered, Lord, we're yours. But without Nehemiah's leadership, the people started picking up bad habits. And they engaged in sinful practices and they started to break promises that they had made to God. And Nehemiah 13 tells us what happened when he returned again to Jerusalem. On that day, they read from the book of Moses. He got them right back in the word. Deuteronomy 23 was the exact passage. They read the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite 
should ever come into the assembly of God. Now, though both Ammon and Moab were distant relatives to Israel, the Ammonites and the Moabites were never considered part of God's chosen family. They were of a different spiritual breed. They were notorious idolaters. And God had banished them from Israel. Verse 2 tells us how they treated Israel when they came up out of the wilderness. They had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. When Israel came out of Egypt into the wilderness, rather than go out to bless their brothers, they went out to curse them. And they hired this Balaam. You can read about him in Numbers 22 through 24. You remember Balaam. He was like Harry Potter. He was sort of an occult practitioner. He was an ancient witch doctor. He would conjure up demons to apply curses on people and play havoc on their lives. That's why the king of Moab hired Balaam to place a curse on Israel. And Balaam wanted to cash in. But verse 2 ends, However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Remember the story? Four times Balaam opened up his big mouth to utter a curse on Israel, but each time God trumped him. And instead of the curse, he ended up uttering a blessing. This proves, mark this down, this proves that God will not allow a curse to be placed on anyone that he has chosen to bless. You need to know that. And he has blessed you, by the way, with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are immune to the voodoo doctor or to the demonic curses that someone might want to hurl your way. Whom God has chosen to bless, no one else can curse. Though God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel, Balaam did cash in because he told the Moabite king what he could do to cause God to curse them himself. He told him, he said, just send in all your Moabite babes. Just, just run the Victoria's Secret show on Israeli TV. Just sort of lure Israel into adultery. And God will curse them in response to their sin and their disobedience. And this is exactly what he did. And he caused Israel to sin. And this was what was happening in Nehemiah's day. The Jews were once again sleeping with the enemy. They were fraternizing with people who were an evil influence. And when Nehemiah returns, he reads the law, and verse 3 shows its effect. So it was when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. They immediately banished the pagan influences. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now, both these names, Eliashib and Tobiah, should ring a bell, for we've seen them before. In chapter 3, when the workers were working on the wall, when their names are listed, the name Eliashib appears first, for he was the high priest. He was supposedly a man zealous for God. This name Tobiah should also be familiar. We just mentioned him. But for the opposite reason, Tobiah was an Ammonite. He was one of the three stooges that, you know, fought with Nehemiah along with Sanballat and Geshem. He opposed Nehemiah. 
He tried his best to undermine the construction of these walls. Now, all of a sudden, he looks up. Nehemiah does. He's come back to Jerusalem. He looks up. And here's Eliashib, the high priest, and Tobiah, his arch enemy, fraternizing. They've buddied up all of a sudden. This is like Benjamin Netanyahu and Osama bin Laden buddying up for dinner. What gives here? Nehemiah saw it as high treason. How could the high priest, no less, do such an awful thing and ally himself with the enemy? Well, verse 28, if you'll skip down, it reveals the answer. You'll see that Eliashib's grandson was married to Sanballat's daughter. In other words, the Jews were sleeping with the enemy. And their unholy alliances were causing the enemy to gain a foothold in the camp. Verse 5 tells us what Eliashib did for Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. Around the outside of the temple were storerooms. And Eliashib, being the keeper of the temple, the high priest, he allowed Tobiah to use one of those storerooms as an apartment when he was in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah can't believe it. He's been gone only a few months, maybe a year at tops, and now his arch enemy is being aided and abetted by his own countrymen, the high priest no less. God's kids have invited the devil kids over to God's house for a sleepover. Nehemiah can't believe it. Nehemiah tells us in verse 6, But during all this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king and came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. I'll bet it did. Vance Havner once wrote, Today the world has so infiltrated the church that we are more beset by traitors within than by foes without. Satan is not fighting churches. He is joining them. This has always been Satan's strategy. If he can't beat us, he'll join us. He'll come in incognito and start to wreak havoc. Nehemiah was grieved bitterly. And in verse 8, we're told what he did. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Notice Nehemiah doesn't give him a warning. Tobiah isn't issued an eviction notice so he can clear out his stuff. Notice Nehemiah doesn't try to convert him or tolerate him or, oh, let's be patient with him, hoping that he'll repent. He doesn't even try to control him and keep him in his place. No. Nehemiah tosses Tobiah out on his ear. He boots him out of the temple. Hey, Nehemiah didn't even pray about it beforehand. He took quick and decisive and deliberate action and excommunicated the enemy of God. And not only that, Nehemiah tells us in verse 9, Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms 
and brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. He even fumigated the place. Nehemiah didn't even want the lingering odor of Tobiah to contaminate the temple. He got rid of his smell. He cleansed the rooms that Tobiah had occupied. You know, all this reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. We would do well to take heed to Paul's warning. Paul talks about ridding the church of its corrupting influences when he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It just takes a little bit of leaven in a clump of dough for it to rise. Leaven permeates throughout if you allow its presence to persist. The same is true with evil in the church. Guys, it's true. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. When a heretic is on the rampage, or when a blatant rebellion, a blatant rebel gets loose in the church, great damage can be done. And that's why the evil influences have to be tossed out on their ear. Hey, if truth matters, we can no longer wink at defiant sin or outright heresy. Nor can we be afraid to hurt someone's feelings when they're hurting the church. We have to say goodbye to Tobiah. And I'm not just talking in theory here. Recently, the elders of our church have had to ask a man who's been a member for a long time not to come back to Calvary Chapel until he repented from his ways of hurting others. Guys, a church is like a ship. It's made to be in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, it sinks. The church is in the world, but let's not allow the world to seep into the church or we will sink. Nehemiah says, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? You remember the last line of chapter 10? The Jews promised, we will not neglect the house of God. But entropy had set in. And nowhere is entropy more apparent than in our giving. Oh, we're so determined to give 10% to the Lord. That is until we have to tighten the budget. Or when the kids have a need. Or when it comes time for vacation. And then we start, Lord, I'll double it next time. And while Nehemiah was away, the Jews stopped giving of their tithes and their offerings to the temple. And as a result, the Levites and the singers had to abandon their post. They had to go out and take up jobs working in the field to make a living. They, they couldn't spend time in the temple like they were supposed to, like the temple needed. Hey, what if one night you, you ordered up something from Domino's and... and Pastor James came to your doorstep and knocked on your door, delivering you your pizza. I mean, Calvary Chapel couldn't pay its pastor. He's out delivering pizzas from Domino's because the people of the church are no longer paying their tithes. Hey, a very real possibility. That's what was happening here in Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah tells us, and I gathered them together and set them in their place. In other words, he brought the Levites back into Jerusalem, reestablished their ministries in the temple, and then reminded the people to support God's work. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. 
Nehemiah's rebuke revived the flame of generosity in their hearts. And the Jews, in fact, were so responsive, he says, I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse. He lists them in verse 13, and we're told they were considered faithful. Now, Nehemiah prays in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Notice this is the first time in this chapter that Nehemiah prays. You know, leaders today, that they want to pray about whether God really wants them to take action or whether they shouldn't, whether I should, whether I should. They, they want to pray about it. Nehemiah, he didn't pray about anything. He takes action to set the house of God in order. And then once the place has been cleaned up, then he prays. Guys, when there's obvious sin in the camp, it's not time to pray. It's time to act. It's time to deal with the problem. After the sin has been dealt with, then we can pray and seek the Lord successfully. Verse 15, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaths and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. They were breaking another promise. They were working on the Sabbath. Verse 16 gives us more detail. Men of Tyre, these were men who lived up on the northern coast. They were famous fishermen, men of Tyre, the Phoenicians. They dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Hey, there was something fishy going on in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. They had set up a fish market right outside the walls on the Sabbath day. He says, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you have bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What are the reasons God judged them in the first place? 150 years earlier was their failure to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now they have a new start, but they're making the same old mistakes. He says, so it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. On Friday night, Nehemiah locked it down. He's locked down the city. And he posted guards to keep the merchants from entering the city, setting up market the next day. Hey, this is bold leadership. This is a man who takes action. Nehemiah, kind of like Barney Fife, he just nipped it in the bud. Nip it, nip it. Nip it in the bud. That's what he did. He nipped it in the bud. He didn't ask the people to stop. He didn't wait on God to lay it on their hearts to change. He just shut down the activity and locked down the city. This is not going to happen on his watch. Verse 20. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice 
So I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And Nehemiah isn't talking about laying hands on them for prayer. If they keep trying to lead God's people into sin, he's going to roll up his shirt sleeves and he's going to bust them in the chops. Here was a pastor with a good left jab. Forgot to take my glasses off, you notice that. (laughs) Who says pastors have to be wimps? Nehemiah was a hands-on leader. Notice the effect his threat had on the merchants. Verse 21. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. I mean, this thing just stopped. They didn't want to mess with Nehemiah. I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Now in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Again, the Jews had become unequally yoked with unbelievers. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. And this broke Nehemiah's heart. As he walked around Jerusalem and noticed the kids on the playground, he recognized that they didn't even know how to speak Hebrew. This was tragic, for the Bible was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of God's people. Thus, these mixed marriages were raising a future generation that would never know God's word and would stray from God's people and would fail to obey God's law. This was a tragedy. And if Nehemiah didn't act, God would lose a whole new generation. The distinctiveness of Hebrew culture and religion could be lost forever. So I contended with them and cursed them struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Here's a horrible, vicious hair-pulling incident right here. Fooled you, didn't I? He said, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah goes ballistic. He punches and he starts hair pulling. I'm telling you, this was a radical guy. Here was a man who was not afraid to mix virtue and violence. You know, sometimes we think those are opposites, but they're not. Sometimes they go together. Nehemiah is so upset with these Jews that he grabs them. He slaps them around a little bit pulls out their hair. He makes them promise not to do it again. Nehemiah, don't play around. Imagine if Nehemiah were your pastor. I mean, too many false moves. And you're going to get your hair yanked out. Nehemiah knew how to get his congregation's attention, no doubt about it. Verse 25 was definitely a hair-raising experience for these people. 
Just a whimper from the gallery. Remember Nehemiah's sidekick, Ezra? You know, Ezra faced a similar situation. And we're told in Ezra chapter 9, verse 3, his response to the problem. He said, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Now, isn't this interesting? Ezra tore his own clothes and pulled out his own hair. When Ezra was confronted with this, he wept and he repented. Whereas Nehemiah tore the other guy's clothes and pulled out his hair. Hey, two godly men facing the same problem, but responding in different ways. And this is how the body of Christ should function. God wires each of us uniquely. He gives us different gifts. Some of us are like Ezra. Sinful situations cause us to bawl. We pray and we repent. Others of us are like Nehemiah. Sinful situations cause us to brawl. We want to confront the sinner and deal with the sin. Some have compassion on the sinner. Others get angry with the sin. I suggest proper balance is both. It's somewhere in between. Both reactions are needed and valid in the church. Well, Nehemiah not only used his fist and hands to get the people's attention, he also is a good example. Verse 26 tells us, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? You know, it's interesting. Solomon's downfall was what? Pagan wives. A thousand wives and 700 concubines, to be exact. You know, whenever he would sign a peace treaty, he would always follow the custom of the day, and that was to take the rival king's daughter as sort of a member of his harem. It was a way of sort of solidifying the agreement. Most men collect guns or baseball cards or postage stamps. Solomon collected wives. And so ladies, before you complain about your husband's hobby, remember Solomon. But whenever a new wife moved in, she brought with her her idols and her false religion of her homeland. And over time, Solomon's wives had set up idols all over Jerusalem. It was terrible. He reminds them of Solomon. Verse 26 continues, Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. He started out so well to Solomon. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan wives? Solomon was the wisest man on earth. And yet his inability to look away from a beautiful babe turned him stupid. And the same tendency has made many a man stupid. Solomon yoked with unbelievers. Don't you follow in his footsteps. The results will be as tragic for you as it was for him. Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. (laughs) Nehemiah had some guts. He was no respecter of persons. He didn't care who you were. And he wasn't afraid of powerful people. He drove off the high priest's grandson and didn't think twice about it. You know, it's interesting to note that the three sins 
that Nehemiah radically opposed. The intermingling of Jews with pagans, the neglecting to pay tithes, and the irreverence for the Sabbath. These were the three things that he was up in arms about. He dealt with these sins. As a matter of fact, he was so successful in creating a disdain among the Jews for these three offenses that they went overboard. And in the years ahead, they became extremely self-righteous and legalistic when it came with three things. Association with Gentiles, neglecting to pay tithes, and the keeping of the Sabbath. So that by the time of Jesus, these were the primary preoccupations of the Pharisees. Remember, they hated Gentiles and any association with them. If they brushed up against a Gentile walking down the street, they went home and burned their clothes. They took it that far. And they stringently paid their tithes. They even tithed a tenth of each of their spices from their spice cabinet, you know. And then in addition to that, oh, they had this rigid system that they concocted for how to go about observing the Sabbath day. They took Nehemiah's instructions and they took it to an extreme. And it's interesting that Jesus had to then go back and correct them on all three accounts. Nehemiah closes with a prayer. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. What a great statement for a spiritual leader to be able to make. I cleanse my people of everything pagan. I got rid of all the evil influences that might have tempted them or brought them down. He says, I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember that wood offering? When somebody asks you, would you do it? And you jump up and say, I would. That's a good wood offering to the Lord. And Nehemiah finishes his prayer with a request. Remember me, O my God, for good. And I am certain God answered his prayer. And there we have the book of Nehemiah.